This Parsha podcast is dedicated by the Davudnia, Wise, Shamulian, and Shiroka families in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas, Shlomo ben Avraham, who passed away this week. He was a remarkably sweet and good man, and he will be missed by his family and all those who knew him. May his soul be elevated in heaven. Parshas B'Shalach begins where Parshas Bo left off. We finally have the Exodus. The Jewish people leave. They leave with great fanfare, with miracles, with signs, with wonders. It seems like Egypt is in the rare view mirror, but seven days later, we have a Mexican standoff. Nay, an Egyptian standoff. The Jewish people are trapped. They're encircled. They have their backs up against the wall. Against the seawall, that is. And Egypt, with all of their chariots and armed warriors, they have surrounded and encircled the nation. And these two camps don't get close to each other for the whole night. And in the morning, Moshe is praying, and the nation is instructed to go where to? We're surrounded. Where is it to go? Go into the water. Jump into the water. Descend into the sea. And God will take care of you. And the nation descends into the water. And the sea splits. And we have one of the most dramatic events in the whole Torah. The nation is walking in dry land. And the water, the sea is like two walls on either side of them. The Egyptians make the ill-fated decision to follow them, and the waters come crashing down upon them, and then the nation emerges, and they erupt into spontaneous song, the song of the sea. So to begin our analysis and study of this episode, I want to begin with an interesting question. The nation is told to march into the water, and the seas split, and they become like two walls, one on the right and one on the left. And our sages tell us that the waters of the sea split into 12 walkable paths, one for every tribe. And the nation enters the dry land amidst the sea. And the Egyptians make the unfortunate decision to pursue them, and the waters come crashing down upon them, and they die. The righteous die like lead. The wicked Egyptians die like drowning straw. But the Jewish people are forever and indelibly moved by this story. And the Egyptians would fasten gold to their chariots. And the Jewish people made hay by the splitting of the sea. They erupt into spontaneous song thanking the Almighty for his tremendous miracle. And then they begin to stockpile all the gold, and Moshe has to drag them away, and they travel for three days without water, and they arrive in Mara, and the waters are bitter, and God directs Moshe to throw a stick into the water, and the waters sweeten, and the parsha continues. We read about the manna, of course, and the quail, and they're stranded again without water. Moshe strikes the rock, and it emits water, and the parsha ends with the war against Amalek. 
But let's focus, at least for now, on the splitting of the sea. Isaiah tell us that the waters were foreboding. They were fearsome. They were raging. They were stormy. And it was terrifying to enter. But the nation entered. But they didn't enter all as one. It wasn't this uniform plunge into the water. There was one man. His name was Nachshon. Nachshon ben Aminadav. He jumped in. He jumped in to the stormy waters. And he was the first one to go in and everyone followed. He was the first to rely on Hashem completely that the Almighty will keep his word. The Almighty says to go in the water, you jump. And the Talmud tells us an incredible Talmud in the book of Sota, page 37a. There was a discussion. Moshe tells the Jewish people, it's time to go into the water. You look at the water and it's a, it's a vortex. It's a gale. It's swarming. It's stormy. It's raging. It's roaring. And no one wants to jump in. And all the people are having discussions and deliberations. And they were saying, well, why don't you jump in first? And well, why don't you jump in first? Long discussions about who should go in first. And without any discussions and without any prompting, Nachshon, Ben Aminadav, Nachshon, the son of Aminadav, he jumps in. He doesn't dip his toe in. He leaps in. And then we read how the waters didn't quite split. And only once they got to his nostrils and he's about to die, he's about to drown in a really tragic fashion. You know, if you survive hundreds of years in Egypt and you actually left and you're seven days out, this would be a very unfortunate time to die. And he cries out and we read his prayer. And right when it couldn't go no longer, the sea split. Now, who is this Nachshon character? Who is this Nachshon ben Aminadav? So the truth is, he already appears earlier in the Torah. In Exodus chapter 6, we read how Aaron married Elisheva. Elisheva bas Aminadav. Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadav. And she was the sister of Nachshon. So, so Nachshon is Aaron's brother-in-law. And he's mentioned in the context of the marriage of Aaron to his sister, Elisheva. Now, Rashi tells us, very interesting, that the reason why Aaron married Elisheva, it's because of Nachshon. So the fact that he's mentioned, it's not just by random chance, Let's list her family members. The reason why Aaron married Elisheva is because he inspected her brothers. Because there's a principle that if you want to know what kind of sons you will have, look at their maternal uncles. And therefore, Aaron was very concerned about what kind of sons he would have. And then he looked at his prospective bride's brother, Nachshon, and he said, I want to have sons like Nachshon. And therefore, he married Elisheva. So Nachshon is very special, obviously, because Aaron specifically sought to marry his sister. Now, he's going to go on to do great things. He's from the tribe of Judah. 
and he was appointed the prince of his tribe. And about a year after the Exodus, the tabernacle is built, and it is inaugurated. And for 12 days after the inauguration, on each successive day, the princes of the tribes of Israel brought very elaborate offerings for the inauguration celebrations. And who goes first? Which tribe goes first? First goes Nachshon. Ben Aminadav, Nachshon, the son of Aminadav, the prince of the tribe of Judah. The Midrash notes that Nachshon bore some very illustrious descendants. Numbered amongst his descendants are David, and Messiah, and Daniel, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Some of the great heroes of our history are descendants of Nachshon. And the first thing we know about him, not just in the context of Aaron marrying his sister, the first episode that we discover about him is this. The nation is surrounded, and Moshe's praying, and God tells Moshe, why are you praying? Don't scream out to me now. Now's not the time to scream. Now is not the time to pray a very long prayer. Speak to the nation and let them travel. Where were it to? Into the water. And Moshe conveys the message. And everyone's debating what to do. Everyone's talking about it, discussing. Let's have a board meeting. Everyone's terrified to jump in the water. The water's so terrifying. Some are even complaining. Moshe, why did you extract us from Egypt to just die here? Are there insufficient graves in Egypt? And Nachshon jumped. And the waters were raging. And it looked suicidal. But he jumped in. And when the water reached all the way up to his nostrils, the water split. As an aside, this is an example of an idea that we see many places throughout our literature and philosophy. That for miracles to happen and for divine aid to be unlocked, a person has to go all the way to the very end of their own ability. Of course, miracles are contingent upon self-sacrifice. If you want God to come and help you, you've got to be committed 100%. But beyond that, you have to actually do whatever you can do to advance that agenda. God does not make miracles for those who sit on their couch and twiddle their thumbs. You have to go to the absolute limits of what you can do and then it unlocks the miracles. Once the water is by the nose, by the nostril, by the nostrils, and the waters have come all the way to the soul and you're about to die, then God splits the sea. And my grandfather wrote an essay about this and he brings a bunch of examples. When Jacob was working for Laban, the verse says that he worked with all of his strength and that is what unleashed, that is what unlocked the divine aid. And uh, Jacob in his encounter with Esau and Joseph in his test with his master's wife, etc. There are many examples of this idea that if you want divine aid, you have to first do everything that is possible for you to do. The Talmud tells us that there are four things that need to be always strengthened, always need constant reinforcement. And they are Torah, 
ומעשים טובים and good deeds, תפילה, prayer, ודרך ארץ. These four things that tells us the book of Brachos on page 32b. These four things always need to be strengthened. What does that mean, says Rashi? A person has to always strengthen himself in these matters. Bechol kocho, with all of his strength. And the fourth and final item in this list is Derech Eretz. Derech Eretz is an ambiguous term that can mean a lot of different things in Jewish literature. Rashi interprets Derech Eretz in this context to mean your occupation, the way of the land, what you do. If you are a craftsman, you have to always be stranded, always do 100%. If you are a merchant, you have to go 100% in your business. If you are a warrior, 100% in your war. Whatever you want, spiritual matters, or even material matters of this world, the Talmud tells us, you need to always reinforce it. You need to always strengthen it if you want to unlock divine aid. Now, this does not mean that you have to give 100% to succeed. You could succeed even without 100%. But the type of success that is the byproduct, that is the result of the Almighty intervening and saying, I'm here and I'm going to give you some divine aid, that has a precondition. And the precondition is that you got to go b'chol kocho with all your strength. you got to go all the way until the water reaches your nostrils. And only then will the miracle happen. My grandfather, a blessed memory, when he founded his yeshiva in 1948, it wasn't like today. Today, yeshiva, you go, and they have, uh, they got chicken for dinner, and there's plenty of food, and uh, the the rooms are climate controlled, and there are plenty of creature comforts to make sure that the students can study properly. In 1948, when he founded his yeshiva in Be'er Yaakov, a city in central Israel. The whole country was living in austerity. And there wasn't this infrastructure to support the yeshiva. And there was real, literal starvation. Literal starvation in the yeshiva. And my grandfather went to the Chazonish, who was the leader of Torah Jewry at the time, and he said, I have to close my yeshiva. I don't have food to buy bread. I don't have money to buy bread for my students, much less to pay a staff and a faculty. And he remembers that the Chazanish said, pointed to his nostrils, you want a miracle. You want divine aid. You want to have the Almighty support your yeshiva. It's got to go all the way to your nostrils. Only then does the sea split. So this is an idea from from Nachshon. This is epitomized by Nachshon. He jumps into the raging sea and the waters do not split. And when he's about to drown, only then does it split. Continues the Talmud. At that time, Moshe was praying and he was engaging, as you imagine you should do in a time of need, he was engaging in a long, heartfelt prayer to the Almighty. And when I says to him, what are you doing? My beloved ones are drowning. 
and you are praying in a long fashion, go tell the nation it's time to get a move on it. So after Nachshon jumps in, everyone else follows him. And eventually, the water split and the miracle is brought to the surface. Concludes the Talmud. In this merit, because of this, Judah, the tribe of Judah, merited that they are the tribe of the monarchy. Judah, they sanctify God. And for that, Yisrael, Mamshalosav, that is why they are in control. They're the kings of Israel. Nachshon is the one that earned the monarchy for the tribe of Judah. So we have a story and we have a great hero, Nachshon. Everyone's scared to go in the water. It appears to be a recipe for sure death. And everyone says, well, why didn't you go in first? Why didn't you try it first? While everyone's talking, everyone's discussing, everyone's debating the merits, Nachshon jumps into the water. And the, the Talmud stresses, he doesn't walk in. He jumps in. He leaps in. And in this merit, the monarchy, the Davidic monarchy, the Messianic monarchy, come from Judah, from the descendants of Nachshon. Now elsewhere, the Midrash probes the question as to why Judah merited to be the tribe of the kings and offers a variety of reasons. Why did Judah merit to be the king? So it says, well, because he admitted in the episode of Judah and Tamar, he was in front of everyone, he was brave enough upstanding enough to admit that he was the guilty party. So it says the Midrash, well, that's not sufficient. He admitted, and that's a great merit, but that would not be enough to earn him the eternal monarchy. Well, maybe it's because he intervened when the brothers wanted to kill Joseph, and he said, let's not kill him. Maybe that's why Judah merited the monarchy. He says, no, that's not sufficient. Well, maybe it's when he tried to save Benjamin and he said, let me be in Benjamin's place after Benjamin was framed by Joseph. We know the story. Joseph places the goblet in the satchel of Benjamin. And he says, okay, Benjamin's my slave now. Y'all could go home. And Judah says, I'll be in his place. Well, maybe that's the reason why. No, that's not the reason why. So what is the reason why, says the Midrash, the same as the Talmud? Because Judah and the star, the standout of the tribe of Judah, Nachshon, jumped in before anyone else. This is why monarchy comes from Judah. Now, even once Nachshon is appointed as a prince, he is lauded above all the other princes. And the commentaries note that in the beginning of the book of Numbers, when it, we have the inauguration of the, of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, and we have the delineation of the, of the 12 princes, and we have the description of the, the 12 tributes that they brought on 12 successive days, there are some differences between how Nachshon is presented and how all the others are. With regards to all the others, the name of their tribe precedes their name. But by Judah, 
The name of the prince, i.e. Nachshon, precedes the name of the tribe. And the reason why our sages tell us is because he was a king. And therefore his stature exceeds that of his tribe's stature. Moreover, it doesn't call him a prince. Says the Arachayim, why does he not receive that same title as a prince? It's because the other princes, the reason why they were offering this tribute to mark the inauguration of the tabernacle, it's only because they were a prince. It's because of the power and the standing of the office. But Nashon was so great, even if he did not have the full power and prestige of the office, he was worthy of offering a tribute. So we have a story. The nation is surrounded by the Egyptians, and they are in mortal existential danger, and no one is willing to take that first step. And Nachshon takes the plunge. Now, I want to study this a bit deeper. I want to kind of ask a question and then develop an idea. Ultimately, everyone jumped into the water. Yes, Nachshon went first, but ultimately everyone went into the water. So what is so special about Nachshon's leap? He went in, but ultimately, you know, he went in a few seconds, a few minutes before everyone else, but everyone else ultimately came around to do that. Yet we law, Nachshon, he's so great. This is the reason why Judah becomes the tribe of the monarchy. Why is this first mover advantage so noteworthy? Moreover, there must be something about this story that is associated with the monarchy. Why specifically did this deed render Nachshon and really his descendants worthy of becoming the kings? Think about it. There are a lot of things that people do, or people did in the Torah, that no one else was brave enough to do. You know, you imagine Moshe would be a great candidate to be the forebearer of, of, of the monarchy. How many things did Moshe do that no one else was willing to do? How many great things did Moshe do that no one else even did at all? Nachshon did something, but everyone else did the same thing as well. He just did it a little bit before them. Yet somehow that renders Nachshon as the candidate worthy of a kingdom. Moshe somehow is not worthy of that. So what exactly is Nachshon's greatness, and why does that translate to him deserving the monarchy? So, of course, if you study Nachshon and his heroism, it's very easy to see his greatness. There's a bunch of different ways that we can view it. You know, not Nachshon has bitachon, bitachon, reliance on God. God says to go, I go, but I'll die. No, you won't die. Nachshon has emuna, has faith. God says something. Don't ask questions. Don't even think about it. Wholehearted faith in God to fulfill the word of God. And maybe that's the standout quality of Nachshon. Nachshon did something that he thought he would die for. So there's an element of self-sacrifice and martyrdom. You could talk about the fact that Nachshon was brave and, and brazen to go first. The Midrash says that he sanctified God's name. Why, says the Midrash, did Nachshon 
go first in the offering of the tributes of the princes. So the tells us that Moshe was instructed that in every day, for 12 successive days, the princes of the 12 tribes should bring a tribute. But God did not tell Moshe what the order would be. Who goes first? And everyone, when that question was posed, they all looked at Nachshon. He has to go first. He sanctified God's name at the sea. He's the one who was worthy of ushering down the Shekhinah from heaven on high. What is implied from this Midrash is that there's a qualitative difference between what Nachshon did as the first prince of, of, the, of his tribe on day one there's a big difference between that and what all the other tribes did. He brought the Shekhinah down. He did the the zero to one transformation. And going from one to two, it's a different class of transformation. And why, says the Midrash? Because he sanctified God's name. So there are a lot of different angles to present Nachshon's greatness and why he's special. The Talmud, of course, says, well, there was discussions. And sometimes you would imagine call for action and not discussions. And even Moshe, Moshe was praying, nah, now's not the right time for that. There are times for discussions, deliberations, and prayer. Nachshon understood that this calls for action. I want to suggest maybe a new angle to understand, to frame Nachshon's greatness, and to understand specifically why this translates to him being deserving of the monarchy. Now, this idea is not incompatible with the other ideas, but maybe it's a new framing of Nachshon. At the end of the parasha, we mentioned this already a few times, the nation has a war, a war against Amalek. Amalek, of course, the individual, the first person with that Name, that notorious name, Amalek was the grandson of Esav. Esav has a son, Eliphaz. Eliphaz marries a woman, she's really his concubine, Timnah, and they bear a son named Amalek. By this time, Amalek is already a nation. And they launch an unprovoked attack against the Jewish people. And Moshe goes on top of the mountain, and he has Aaron on one side, and Hor on the other side, and he sits on a stone, and he raises his hands, and Joshua is nominated to lead the Jewish people in battle below. And when Moshe raises up his hands, the Jewish people win, and when his hands grow weary, they lose, or they are weakened. But between the Exodus, the nation hasn't even arrived at Sinai. There's only one nation that is brazen enough to challenge the Jewish people. And they epitomize the opposite of our nation. And the Parsha ends by telling us that the throne of God is incomplete until the influence of Amalek has been completely eradicated. And we are commanded, the verse tells us in Devarim, chapter 25, we're commanded to never forget what Amalek did to us. But there's a very interesting way that this is described, what Amalek actually did. The verse tells us in chapter 25 of Devarim, when it recalls, recounts what Amalek did, it says, Asher karcha 
baderech, karcha. What does the word karcha mean? So Rashi offers a variety of interpretations. And Rashi says, one of the interpretations is that the word karcha comes from the word, not mikra, not keri, but kor, which means cold, as in the context of cold and hot. Amalek rendered you cold. Amalek chilled the Jewish people. Amalek tempered the heat of the nation. After the Exodus, every other nation, Rashi tells us, was terrified of the Jewish people. Even if you read in the song at the sea, it references how everyone was trembling before the Jewish people. And no one was brave enough or crazy enough to go wage war with the Jews. No one besides for Amalek. Amalek, they showed how to attack the nation. And they showed others that it's possible to do it. And Rashi offers a parable, an analogy. There was a piping, boiling bath. And no creature can enter that fiery bath without being burned. And one crazy person said, I'm going to jump into the water. Even though he got burned, he rendered the bath water cold. He got burned. But now everyone's like, well, maybe the water's not as hot as it used to be. He chilled it. And they too can enter the water. It kind of struck me. We have in the beginning of the parsha, we have Nachshon, and he does something similar to what Amalek does in the end of the parsha. Amalek, they did what no one else was willing to do. No one wanted to jump into the boiling, piping, steaming bath. It was suicidal. Nachshon, in the beginning of the parsha, he did what no one else wanted to do. No one wanted to jump into the roaring, raging sea. It was suicidal. And Amalek jumped in, and they cooled the waters. They changed the perception of the waters. It was it was just too fearsome. It was too terrifying. It was too formidable. It was too dangerous. Too hot. It was suicidal to enter. That's what everyone felt with regards to the Jewish people after the Exodus. And then Amalek, this this crazy person, they jump in and they cool down the water and they alter the perception of the water and thereby fundamentally change how other people view it. What Amalek did in opposition to the will of God, Nachshon did in support of the will of God. God said, go into the water. God said, jump. You look at the water, it's raging, it's powerful, it's going to completely suck you in to its vortex. It was patently absurd, at least the way it appeared, to jump in the water. It was suicidal. And everyone was scared. The bath, so to speak, the sea, appeared like a furnace. And like Amalek did on the negative side, Nachshon 
cooled the bathwater. He gave others the boost that they needed to see that it can be done. He fundamentally altered the perception about that bath. He showed them you could go in and you can rely on God. The only difference between the bravery of Nachshon versus the bravery of Amalek is that Nachshon wasn't damaged. He wasn't injured. He wasn't scalded by the water. It looked the same, but one had the protection of God, and one was in violation of the will of God. So Amalek, in fact, did get burned, but Nachshon was unscathed. But what they both had to do was the same. Just like Amalek, they cooled the water and they rendered it comfortable for others to go in. Nachshon did the same. And the fact that others went in, if you think about it, that is precisely what makes Nachshon's bravery and his faith and his, and his gumption so laudable. Nachshon's greatness is that he demonstrated for others not something that they cannot do, but he showed them something that they are in fact capable of. Perhaps we can say that this is the definition of a king. A king is not just about personal greatness and and bravery and doing things that no one else can do. It's not just doing things that people are not capable of doing. It's It's really the opposite. The true leader, the true king, is someone that shows others what they are, in fact, capable of. A king reveals to others what they were always capable of, but were terrified to do because the waters are too fearsome, the waves are too high, it's too stormy, the bath is too piping hot. Moshe, if you think about it, he's not really a king. What Moshe does, no one else can do. No one can really emulate Moshe. There's no prophet, we're told, like Moshe, even Messiah. He's going to be a prophet, but one notch lower than Moshe. Moshe, everything that he does is just totally fanciful for us to even dream about doing it ourselves. Moshe goes up to heaven and negotiates with the angels, and he's coaxing rocks to emit water, and he's orchestrating the miraculous plagues, the splitting of the sea. Moshe is doing things that we cannot even dream of doing. And this is certainly not expected of the rank-and-file Jew. But what Nachshon did, that, even though we don't know it, that is something that we are capable of. It's just too terrifying. Jumping into the terrifying waters, having complete faith in God, overcoming our fears of doing something that appears to be suicidal, that is expected of the rank and file. Of course, we cannot call any Jew rank and file. We are all princes and princesses, but the ordinary Jew, well, of course, no Jew is ordinary, but the regular, extraordinary, princely Jew, they are expected to do what Nachshon did. But Nachshon showed us what we're capable of. Nachshon cooled the waters. He gave the waters a chilling effect. He helped us mentally reframe the perception of how challenging it actually is. And for that reason, he was coronated as a king, not himself, but his future descendants. 
The Talmud of the Book of Sanhedrin, page 20b, tells us that there are certain rights that are afforded to a melech, to a king. And one of them is that they're able to breach through a barrier, through a fence, through a wall, to make a path. And no one can stop them from doing that. And the path of a king has no limits. It doesn't have to be, you know, just uh, five meters wide. It could be as wide as they want it to be. Interesting that this is one of the descriptions that we have of a king. Maybe we can suggest that this is the definition of what a king is. They are there to breach what appears to be an impregnable wall. They're there to, to break things down, break down and shatter the illusions of impossibility. That is the attribute of a king. Everyone else sees a wall. Everyone else sees a raging sea. Everyone else sees a bath that's just way, way, way too hot. What does the king do? They break down the wall. They breach the barricades. They don't see any problems. They take initiative, like Nachshon. And they shatter those walls of resistance and they forge ahead. And the path that they make is not limited. The path that they blaze has to be wide enough for the entire nation to follow them. The nation was faced with a brick wall. They were surrounded. They were encircled. They were totally botched in. And Nachshon breached the wall. Nachshon broke down the barricades. He shattered the barriers. He jumped in the water. And once he broke in, the path, the breach that he left behind him was wide enough that the entire nation could follow. He fundamentally changed the perception and everyone else realized that this is in fact doable. Amalek is exactly like this, just in the opposite direction. They too encountered a stiff wall. No one dared to attack the Jewish people. It appeared uh, suicidal. And in fact, was suicidal. But they just jumped in. Unlike Nachshon, they got burned. They were singed. They were scalded by the water. Of course, anyone who violates the will of God ultimately does get singed. But nevertheless, they did for the evil side, so to speak, what Nachshon did for the Jews. They made it easier for other people to do the same. Nachshon is, on one level, he's the king of the Jewish people. He has this first mover advantage. He showed us what we were always capable of. Listening to God, even though it appears to be terrifying and scary and suicidal, it's what we need to do. And those fears and those waters, it's just an illusion. It's a test. It's a facade. It's a paper tiger. It's smoke and mirrors. Amalek. Well, they're, they're the, they're the kings for the other side. They have the negative first mover advantage. And so long as this malevolent king yet reigns, the throne of God is incomplete. 
Now, it's interesting. The Talmud tells us that the origins of Amalek are a bit surprising. His mother, Timna, she wanted to become a Jew. She wanted to convert. And she came to Abraham, and Abraham rejected her. And she came to Isaac, and Isaac rejected her. And she came to Jacob, and Jacob rejected her. But she did not give up. And she said, well, if I cannot join the prestigious part of this family, I'll join the other side of the family. And she became a concubine to Eliphaz, the son of Esav. She said, I prefer to be a maidservant that's somehow tangentially associated with this nation. That is preferable to me than to be a mistress for another nation. And she bore Amalek. Amalek is, of course, the force that has caused us tremendous anguish and pain. And the reason why, says the Talmud of the Book of Sanhedrin on page 99b, why did we suffer so much at the hands of the Amalekites? It's our fault. It's because we distanced Timna. Why, in fact, did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob reject Timna's application to convert? So we're not told the answer to that question. But maybe it's because they discovered in her quality that was manifested by Amalek, and that is this, what we call the, the first mover advantage or disadvantage. And that could be very terrifying because that's the quality of someone who breaches fences, who breaks down walls. The walls, most walls, are, are there for a good reason. And when you see someone breaking down walls and breaking down stigmas and, and doing things that no one else is willing to do, that, of course, gives you pause. And they said, this this woman's too dangerous. We don't want her. Who knows what kind of norms she will shatter? And maybe the criticism or the, the suffering, so to speak, that we had to endure because of this decision was because the forefathers, maybe they failed to realize that this quality can be repurposed for good. The Talmud tells us that Haman, of course, Haman is an Agagite, but he comes from Agag, who was the king of Amalek. So Haman is from the nation of Amalek. And his descendants were told they studied Torah in the city of Benebrak. They reached the pinnacle of Jewish scholarship. They converted and became Jews, not just ordinary Jews. They became absolute standouts. What does this mean? It means that there is the ability, so to speak, in Amalek for it to be turned into something not just okay and tolerable, but into something that's so wonderful and so splendid and so fantastic and so exceptionally extraordinary. And maybe that's the problem, so to speak, with the decision of the forefathers with Timna. There was the potential, so to speak, for wondrous greatness in Timna, the likes of which really we only see in Nachshon and all the other kings that come from him. And maybe ultimately some of it was actualized in the descendants of, of Haman and Timnah and Amalek and Aliphaz, etc. 
And until this is done completely, until Amalek is no longer playing for the other side, the throne of God is not complete. If we have a king, a competent and capable king on the other side, that, so to speak, diminishes a little bit from the monarchy, so to speak, and the reign and the hegemony of the Almighty. So there are a lot of lessons that we could take away from this idea. I think it's a fascinating idea just on its own, but maybe one of the lessons that we can take home with us is that there are different ways to do great things. There is the Moshe variety. Moshe was capable of doing things that no one else could replicate, no one could match. Nachshon did something that every single Jew matched. Nevertheless, Nachshon, he is the one who earned the monarchy for Judah. Why? Because he did it first. He did it when people had assumed that it was undoable. And of course, that takes faith and, and reliance on God and bravery. And it may seem suicidal. But doing something that everyone can do, being confident and bold and brazen enough to do it first, to chill the bathwaters for others. If you're listening to the Almighty, if you're following his words, unlike Amalek, you can be assured that you won't be burned. The water is not actually boiling. It won't hurt. You won't be singed. You won't be scalded. Quite the contrary. You will have attained some of the qualities of a king. Now, we like to end off our Parsha podcasts that we do from Houston, Texas. That's where we are, in the Torch Center, in the, in the studio, which doubles as a classroom, sometimes an office, a library, but it's right now, it's a studio in the beautiful Torch Center in Houston, Texas. If you want to send me an email, you can send me an email. RabbiWalbaJim.com. You want to see some of the other things that we do here at the Torch Center, visit our website, torchweb.org. Don't forget that our organization only subsists thanks to your generosity and your support and your friendship. And also don't forget, I probably should have mentioned this at the top when most of y'all were still listening. Now at the end of the show, it's just, just the diehards. But in a couple of weeks, please God, the middle of February, we're going to have our only annual fundraiser. And please save up your money so you can help support Torch and keep the flame of Torch lit and bright. A beating of Torah throughout the world in 2023. Okay, we like to end the Parsha podcast with a question. Now, sometimes we ask a question and we give an answer. And sometimes we ask a question and we just want to enjoy the question, just to savor, just to ponder, just to cogitate upon it, to ruminate upon it, to dwell within the question. And today's question is of the latter variety. And this is going to be sourced in a, in a very beautiful midrash. Very, very beautiful midrash. Really a delightful, delightful midrash. And it's something that I want to just enjoy. Maybe you have an answer. I could think of some answers. You could think of some answers. But the question is just beautiful. So let's, uh, let's enjoy it. You could send me your answers, of course, to the aforementioned email. The Torah tells us that 
when the nation left, Moshe was taking the bones of Joseph. Now, the Midrash, at the end of the Torah, the very last thing that happens in the Torah is the death and the burial and the eulogy of Moshe. And who buried Moshe? It was God who buried Moshe. Well, why did God bury Moshe? What did Moshe do to deserve that? Because Moshe tended to the burial of Joseph, God says, okay, I'm going to repay you measure for measure. The Almighty always operates with the principle of measure for measure. Mida, keneged, mida. Measure for measure. You buried Joseph, I will bury you. But it tells us a remarkable story with a beautiful image. It was time to leave. It was the end of the exile. And Moshe was looking for the bones of Joseph. And he spent three days and three nights scouring the city, looking up and down and everywhere in between to find where Joseph was interred. Where is this box, this coffin of Joseph that we read at the end of the book of Genesis? The very last words of Genesis. He was placed in a box, in a coffin. Where? He didn't know. And Moshe was just frantically searching throughout the city to find the location of the bones of Joseph. And after he worked for a very long time, he met Sarah, the daughter of Asher. And she sees Moshe and he's sweating and he's tired. And she says to Moshe, what do you... What do you need? Why are you working so hard? So he responded, well, for three days and three nights, I've been looking throughout the whole city to find the bones of Joseph, and I have no idea where it is. And she says, well, I know where it is. And she takes him to a stream. And she says, in this place, I remember, Sarah was very old. She just tells us she was alive at the time. And she says, I remember what happened. They made a coffin, and they made it weighted. They added weights to it. And the necromancers and the sorcerers of Pharaoh, they came over here and they went to, they spoke to Pharaoh. And they said, you want to keep this nation here forever? You want to forever enslave this Jewish people? If you manage to hide the bones of Joseph, you hide the bones of Joseph and no one could find it, If the Jewish people cannot find the bones of Joseph, they are incapable of leaving. So Moshe went to the spot that Sarah told him. And he started praying. And he tells Joseph, well, you said, God will redeem you. Give some honor to Israel. Don't delay the redemption. Request mercy from the Almighty and bubble to the surface. And lo and behold, the coffin, the weighted coffin of Joseph, began to float. And Moshe put the coffin on his shoulders. And he started dragging it. And the whole nation was dragging. Everyone was laden with things. But the nation, they were carrying all the gold and all the silver that they had plundered from Egypt. And Moshe was carrying something equally as heavy, but it was the bones of Joseph. 
And God says, well, you tended to Joseph, you buried Joseph, I will bury you. So I love this midrash for a few reasons. First of all, the nice history filling filling us in the story of, of how Moshe found the bones of Joseph. Of course, later on in the book of Exodus, we get a little bit of a different take as to how Moshe found the bones of Joseph. We read about the metal sheet that he put in the water with the words Alei Shar, and that somehow came out came to uh, to play later on with the mating, the construction of the golden calf. But I love this image of everyone schlepping something, everyone dragging something really heavy, and the nation's carrying all the gold and all the silver, and Moshe is carrying the bones of Joseph. But the question I want to I want to ponder is that everyone agrees. Pharaoh and his necromancers and his sorcerers and Moshe, everyone agrees that if the Jewish people left the bones of Joseph in Egypt, the redemption could not have happened. And the question is why? Why is the redemption contingent upon having the bones of Joseph? Why is that a necessary precondition for the Exodus? That is the question that I love. This is a midrash that I love something to savor, something to ruminate upon, something to consider, something to dwell upon, the bones of Joseph, the bones of Joseph, and their power to facilitate and to enable the Exodus. I thank you for listening. It was a joy and a pleasure to share this partial podcast with you, my dear friend. Send me an email, rabbiwalbajim.com. Have an incredible rest of your day. A splendid rest of your week a quiescent, uplifting, exuberant Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, help me, we'll talk again next week.